Amen. And if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. And again, I do want to welcome you if you're especially visiting with us this day and if we've never met. Again, my name is Ted. I'd love to greet you after the service. Thank you for coming here at Redeemer. We believe that the Bible is the Word of God. And every week we aim to read, mark, study, and inwardly digest this Word. This morning, we continue in Hebrews and a portion that's teaching us about love. From back at the end of chapter 12, the writer told us, we, all who believe in Jesus, are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And because God is giving us an enduring kingdom, the kingdom where Jesus is king, the kingdom of grace now and glory in one day, we are secure in him. And because of that, we worship him and we should love people. In verses 1 to 3, we saw we are to love people. We are to love not to gain God's love, but because we've been given it. We love because we've been loved by him. So in chapter 13 at verse 1, he says, love your brothers and sisters. At verse 2, love strangers. At verse Three, love the persecuted, the imprisoned, the mistreated. At verse 5, next week, he's going to tell us what not to love. Do not love money. So it's all about love. Here at verse 4, it's about marital love, even sexual love. And so we want to think about marriage and its intimacy and how God would have us enjoy that. From his word, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. Let me invite you to give attention then to God's word. Let marriage be held in honor among all. And let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Amen. This is God's word. May he write it on our hearts. Let's look to him in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would be our teacher this day. Grant that this word would transform us by the renewing of our minds that we would not be conformed to the pattern of this world any longer. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. A friend of a friend uh, came within a hair's breadth of committing adultery. He and his wife were in a season of life, just very busy, like many people experience. She was uh, investing in training their children. He was investing in the work necessary to provide for those children. And they became tired in life, unsurprisingly. And they had not been investing in one another, as so often happens. Affection had grown cool. Nobody was particularly at fault. It's one of these things that happens. But at work, there was a woman who was very responsive to him, gave him a lot of attention, laughed at his jokes. She'd be in a lot of the same meetings. They 
connected. They had a kind of mutual affinity for one another, and the relationship grew unhealthy. Uh, Their jokes became inappropriate. And at some point in the midst of this inappropriate joking, she dropped a pretty clear hint that should he wish to pursue things, she'd be very available for that. Well, he was feeling sorry for himself at home, unrespected, alone. He drove to her house one night and planned to have an affair with her, knowing she was in the house, knowing she would accept him. While he was sitting in the driveway... A passage from the Bible came to his mind from Psalm 84. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. And the overwhelming sense that he had from that passage was that if the Lord is withholding something from him, it cannot be good for him. And if the Lord then was withholding this woman from him, he knew she could not be good for him. And so he backed out of the driveway. And thankfully, he is still a married man. Honoring marriage and the marriage bed is important and not always easy. And I know that as we talk about marriage, we we may have fears or hurts or uh, confusion, disappointments. We may have hopes. hopes. Hopes perhaps of being married and married well. Fears we won't be, won't have a good marriage. We, uh, some of us, have deep disappointments with the institution of marriage, maybe because of our parents divorcing or uh, loved ones, friends, siblings. Uh, some in here have themselves been divorced and know the pain of that experience very personally. And perhaps uh, you're married and there's just a low level of constant hostility and little warmth or affection in your marriage. Or maybe you're just confused about the whole institution. I mean, what is marriage anyway in light of the way that it's so rapidly being redefined in our day, especially in the U.S.? And so we come to a passage about marriage and sexuality with lots of questions and concerns, perhaps. And this is a short one-verse passage that invites a much longer conversation. And that's a conversation I would be glad to engage with you in, in private over your questions or your struggles or your sorrows. But this morning, let me invite you to consider three main things from this passage. Let's consider what God says to us here when he says to us in the first place, marriage is honorable, so we should honor it. And then the second, that the marriage bed is pure, so we are not to defile it. And thirdly, this warning that the sexually immoral and adulterous God will judge. Those three things this morning. In the first place, I want you to see that marriage is honorable, and so we should honor it. Verse 4, opening phrase, let marriage be held in honor among all. To honor marriage, don't make more of it than it is, but don't make less. Uh, Don't make it everything. Marital love is not the only kind of love. 
in the Christian community, we've already seen, verses 1 to 3, that he wants us to embrace familial love. We are to love one another as brothers and sisters. We're to love strangers. We're to love the persecuted, the hurting. Uh, So uh, there's all kinds of love that we are meant to show and express uh, here. Um, So it's not not that, unless you are married, you can't experience Christian love or um, express Christian love. No, no, no. Everybody around you needs love from you, and we all need to be loved by one another. And don't make too much of verse 4. He's also saying here, however, if you're married, uh, your spouse does not have exclusive claims on your love. Don't mishear me, but not exclusive claims for your attention, friendship, emotional investment, time, money, and prayers. Exclusive claims on your sexual love, absolutely. But lots of people need you to love them, verses 1 to 3. So married love, um, sexual love, is not the only thing in Hebrews 13. It's not the only thing in life. Don't make too much, but don't make too little either. Um, we can dishonor marriage in a variety of ways. We can dishonor marriage by forbidding it. People have done this. Uh, certainly uh, fewer today uh, by forbidding it, though people are abandoning it. Uh, some did, did in the day of the writing of this embrace what's called asceticism, right? That, that marriage and the marriage bed were pleasures we should deny ourselves, that it was uh, more spiritual, some thought, to remain single and celibate, and that marriage was kind of a, a second best way to live. It's called asceticism. It's the idea that you can kind of attain greater godliness by denying to yourself um, pleasures, uh, comforts, things that God has otherwise uh, freely given you permission to enjoy, but that if somehow if you deny them to yourself, that you'll go uh, deeper with the Lord. And the Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter 2 clearly comes out in condemnation of the kind of asceticism he says that uh, it, ha- it has an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But uh, they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Um, Origen, an early church father, some of you may know this, he had himself castrated so that he could be free, he thought, of sexual temptation. Augustine, who at a time in his life had a concubine and a son by her, Uh, yet came around to the view that he ought to give her up and devote himself to celibacy in following Christ. I think that's tragic. Uh, He he viewed sex in marriage, as many in his day did, and grew to follow him in this as sort of a necessary evil simply to procreate children, but not as God's gift to be enjoyed. And you know that the Roman Catholic Church requires their priests to remain and make a vow of celibacy. Um, Martin Luther, however, Protestant Reformation, 500 years, we keep saying things about this. He broke with that tradition and he married a former nun and he extolled the blessings of marital love, as the Bible does. But notice that the command here is that marriage is to be honored among all. Not that all must be married, but that no one should forbid it, certainly at least, Uh, as if it was less spiritual or less a godly way of living. It should be honored among all. And the way to honor marriage is to receive it as God's gift, 
to embrace his purposes for it and hold to his definition of it and aim to live in light of that. Let me walk you through a little bit of that. We, how should we honor marriage? It's honorable. Well, in part by receiving it as his gift. It is, after all, his invention, so to speak. When it was not good that the man should be alone in the garden, God said, I will make a helper fit for him. One like him, yet different, a female to his male, a suitable companion for him in life. And God brought her to the man. He performed the first wedding ceremony. And so you see that marriage is his idea. It's not society's idea. It wasn't instituted by people. It wasn't instituted by governments. It predates human government as an institution. It didn't come into existence because people got together and asked themselves the question, what's a good way for men and women to relate to one another? Or what's a good way for us to procreate and have children or raise them and nurture them? Or what's a good way for us to have sexual relationships? God thought of all of this, not us. We should honor marriage in part by simply recognizing it comes as a gift from our creator and embrace his purposes for it. What did Adam need help for in the garden that she was a helper suitable for? Uh, Why did he need this lifelong companion? Well, just before God made Eve for Adam at verse 18, where it begins to say that he needs her. In verses 15 through 17 of Genesis chapter 2, God had just put him in the garden and told him to work it and to keep it. And he gave him a command about some trees. He said, basically, obey me. And actually, the, word, word, uh, the words about to, uh, to um, work it and keep it uh, come from the words to, to serve and obey. Uh, basically, God had, God had said to Adam, now you are, the, you are the Lord of this creation under my lordship. And you have dominion. Now serve me as a son in this house I have built for you. And obey me. Walk with me in wisdom. And what Adam needed help for then was that. He needed a companion to help him know and enjoy and honor God in life. This is the primary purpose of marriage. And if we lose sight of it, we lose sight of what marriage is really ultimately about. The fall of the sin was a failure in that. And every married couple now struggles with this. Uh, Tim Keller says, when you've been married about six weeks, uh, you'll be driving home from work, and a weird thought will strike you. It's the thought, you married the wrong person. Because the person you married is selfish. And then you think, well, I, I need to sit down. With my spouse, and we need to talk about this. And so you, you try to gently sit down with your spouse, spouse, and 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 say, in whatever way you attempt to do so, the problem in our marriage is you're selfish. And then coming right back at you are the words: the problem in our marriage is you're selfish, right? And who's right? You're both right. And at that point, you can either choose to see your spouse's selfishness or your own selfishness as the bigger problem. And the choice you make about that that day and every day moving forward will determine in many ways the course of your marriage and the happiness of it. Because if you are always telling yourself that they are the problem here, you will be a miserable person and probably make them miserable. Just own it. 
You're the problem in your marriage. You need Jesus to save you, rescue you, help you, and enable you to love your spouse in the way that you're called to. And none of us do it well. But you're the big problem. And you need to be forgiven. And yes, of course, they need to be forgiven too. So you've got to ask yourself, am I, am, I, am I in this thing to bless and serve and please them? Or am I always waiting for them to bless and serve and please me? Are you in your marriage helping one another to know and enjoy and honor God? That's what marriage is for. And, and one of the ways we honor marriage is we embrace God's purposes for it. And also by embracing his definition of it. After officiating that first wedding ceremony of Eve and Adam, the the passage goes on not to describe the wedding, but to define the relationship. And Jesus picks up on that definition in Matthew chapter 19 when he's asked about marriage and the issue of divorce. In Matthew chapter 19, beginning at verse 3, Pharisees came to him and said to him, testing him, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate says Jesus. So Jesus says, go back to the very beginning, in the garden, before sin entered the world, God defined marriage for you as the lifelong union of a husband and wife. And we don't honor marriage if we seek to redefine it. And we have no authority to do so. And I realize that raises all kinds of questions, issues of divorce, issues of same-sex marriage, Issues really of how we live our lives. And, and let me just touch briefly on those. What about divorce? In Jesus' day, there were some rabbis, some who taught easy divorce. Basically, if the husband is somehow displeased with his wife in some even very minor and little way, if she burns the toast and he's displeased, he can cast her away. And so that's why they came to him with that question. Is it lawful to divorce for any reason? Right? And, of course, what he says is, no, it's not. God makes the husband and wife one flesh. And what God has joined together, let no man separate. So easy divorce doesn't honor marriage. That is not to say, however, that the Bible doesn't have more to say about divorce. Jesus does and Paul does in 1 Corinthians. He does go on to speak of adultery and desertion as allowable reasons for Divorce. You may have lots of questions about those things, and I'd be glad to interact with you about them. But there are allowable circumstances, not mandatory, but allowable. Now, what about the issue of same-sex marriage? Well, we might say it this way, very provocatively, that according to the Bible, there is no such thing as same-sex marriage. That is... Whatever the relationship is between two people who are same-sex attracted, it is not marriage as God gave it. Whatever we might say about the mutual faithfulness of two friends of the same uh, sex and their intimate behaviors with one another, 
They may be more faithful in terms of monogamy than others. Whatever we might say about that faithfulness, the one thing we cannot say is that they are being faithful to God in what God has defined marriage and the sexual relationship to be. And nor at the end of the day are they being faithful to one another in helping one another with what marriage is for and what our sexual experience is about. But listen, I mean, in today's culture, and if you're visiting here today for the first time, I want you to, I I surely want you to appreciate that we don't talk about these things at Redeemer all the time. And we're not usually on, I'm, I'm, not, I'm tra- not trying to be on hobby horses, and this is not a hobby horse. I say this with trepidation. Um, but it's the passage we have before us. So if this is your first time here, please come back. Think through the Bible with me. Uh, but, but you, or, or certainly our culture, would be saying, that man, he's a hater. He's a bigot. He's a homophobe. And how arrogant of him. And if you hold to a biblical definition of marriage, the, the world around you guys is going to likewise say this of you. But I want, to do, I want to say this. You don't have to hate anybody to hold to God's truth. Desiring people to embrace their creator's design for their well-being is not ultimately hating, but rather loving another person. God, we're simply saying, knows best for what us for knows what is best for us, what is good for us, what is for our happiness and our well-being, and to want that for others is loving, not hating. And it's not inherently arrogant to hold that position. Now, obviously, we can hold that position arrogantly, and we can throw it around with great pride and self-righteousness. But simply to hold the position or to proclaim it is not inherently arrogant because this isn't our position. We didn't make this up. We didn't think this uh, and come to our own conclusion. This isn't our opinion. We're trying to throw into the lives of other people to mess with their lives. We're simply embracing what God has declared. And that's ultimately humble, not arrogant, to listen to our creator about what he says about these things. So... Um, I would ask us, are we learning from him what he is teaching? And one final way we dishonor marriage that ought to humble all of us who are married is when those who are married don't live the way that God intended. And if you're married, you know that you struggle with this because the Bible says husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. And wives respect or honor your husbands. And so don't you know that the biggest enemy to the institution of marriage is the sinners who are married? You who are married, how do you honor marriage? Love and honor and cherish and serve your spouse. And where do you get the power to do that? The gospel only. Jesus died to himself to live for you. He died for you that you might no longer live for yourself, but live for him who died for you and raised you to life. And we need him alive in us if we are to love one another within marriage the way that he intended. And we certainly need his grace 
for our failures in that. That's the first thing I want you to see. Marriage is honorable. Let us honor it. Second, marital sexual relations are good. So don't defile them. Notice the language. And let the marriage bed be undefiled. The marriage bed is the sexual relationship. And didn't he know that there would be kids in attendance when he put this in God's word? Yes, he absolutely did. And kids need to hear this from God's own word. God invented sexual intimacy. It, too, is his idea. And it is good. And it is a blessing when experienced by those who are bound together in marriage. Here he says, don't defile it or corrupt it or pollute it. And we can do that in one of two ways. He'll go on to speak of adultery, which refers to those who are unfaithful within the bounds of marriage by stepping outside of those bounds for that intimacy. And so they aren't faithful to their marriage. And he speaks here of sexual immorality, which refers to those who deviate from God's plan outside of marriage. That might be by incest. It might be by homosexuality. It might be by bestiality. You can hardly believe I said it except it's in the newspapers in Siloam Springs for people being arrested for that activity. And other kinds of sexual deviations from what God has designed sex for, premarital intimacy. These are all ways the Bible describes sexual immorality. Now, in doing so, the Bible isn't against sex at all, but it knows it's a power, it's a force, that it's an awesome gift, but it can also be destructive. And there's a purpose and point to it. So the Bible is pro-intimacy here, not prudish about it. The Bible speaks very positively about the pleasure of it for both men and women. Just to run through some passages, Proverbs chapter 5, verse 19, Solomon, in all of his wisdom, tells his son to rejoice in his wife and let her breasts fill you at all times with delight be intoxicated always in her love when the bible commands you to get drunk it says don't do it on wine but you can do it in the marriage bed song of solomon extols the joys of married intimacy and it extols both the husband's enjoyment and delight in his wife and the wife's delight and enjoyment of her husband. It's not dirty. It's not shameful. It's not defiled. It's good, God says. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 will tell both husbands and wives that they do not have authority over their own bodies, but their spouse does. And they have a responsibility to their spouse. 1 Corinthians 7 verse 3, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. And he'll go on to say in verse 5, do not deprive one another except by mutual consent and by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourself to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So you can certainly separate for a time. You can certainly abstain for a time for spiritual purposes, for prayer, to seek the Lord's help, to do all these. But even then he says, now, don't go on too long in that or Satan might tempt you. And don't allow yourself because of your lack of self-control to be so tempted. Marriage then is God's provision. You want another purpose of it. It is God's provision for the righteous satisfaction of our desires 
in this way. It is his remedy, we might say, for unrighteous expressions of those desires. And we, he says in marriage, are to flee temptation into one another's arms as married people. And so he goes on to say then of the unmarried, if they cannot exercise self-control, this is 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 9, they should marry because it is better to marry than to burn with passion. And so I want to say to you, some of you, you need to stop kidding yourself. You are thinking and acting like you're not in need of a spouse, and yet your body is speaking to you that you do need a spouse. Well, that's because you do need a spouse. Most of you. Not all. But you should look for one. You should ask God for one. But don't be afraid to wait for the right one. Christians are to only marry in the Lord, marry other believers, and more miserable than being single and longing to be married is the person who is married but wishes that they were single. So ask God for wisdom, ask him for patience, ask him for provision, and pray for your future spouse's growth in grace and sanctification. My in-laws began praying for me unnamed when they found out Melina had been conceived. And 20 some years later that bore fruit or 18 years later that bore fruit in my conversion and faith in Jesus. You can begin praying if you aren't already for that. There are some, 1 Corinthians 7, who choose to remain single and Paul commends that. It provides time and opportunity to serve the Lord in a way that unmarried people don't have time and opportunity. And some of you have the gift of chastity with contentment so that by God's help, of course, you can be single and be faithful. And you must take encouragement from Jesus, who was unmarried, never had sex with a man or a woman, never gave in to any lust, And though he experienced every human temptation, he never sinned sexually. And he was the truest, fullest human being who ever lived. There was no deprivation in his humanity by the absence of the expression of his sexuality. Jesus then is our pattern, but Jesus is also our hope. The godly minister John Stott, who's now with the Lord, himself a single man, said... Quote, it is no good giving me a play like Hamlet or King Lear and telling me to write a play like that. Shakespeare could do it. I can't. And it is no good showing me a life like the life of Jesus and telling me to live like that. Jesus could do it and I can't. But if the genius of Shakespeare could come and live in me, then I could write plays like that. And if the spirit of Jesus could come and live in me, then I could live a life like that. This is the secret of Christian sanctity. It is not that we should strive to live like Jesus, but that he by his spirit should come and live in us. To have him as our example is not enough. We need him as our savior. So we need Jesus to wait for our spouse And to be faithful to our spouse. Keep the marriage bed pure. And finally he says much more briefly for us. He says God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Those who are sexually immoral and adulterous. 
God will judge. That would have seemed really strange in the day that this was written to the people of that day. Maybe not all of the Jews who were hearing it, but chastity in their, among their population was, was thought to be an unreasonable demand. The Roman philosopher Seneca said if a wife was content with only having two lovers, she was a paragon of virtue. Uh, the other poet, a cynic, said a pure woman was one, only one who had not been asked. And any husband upset over the affairs of his wife was no better than a country bumpkin. Men expected to have prostitutes and recourse to prostitutes in the ancient Greek and Roman world. So it would have been a shock to some to hear this warning as some are shocked in our day. Now listen, when you hear this word, God is not saying that adultery and sexual immorality are unpardonable sins. You can be forgiven for these things. Jesus came to save the chief of sinners. And that is good news for many people in this room who could testify that they need that kind of forgiveness in their life for those kinds of sins. But the warning is there. And we need to have the warning and the hope held together. Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 pulls these two things together very nicely in beginning of verse 9 when he says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying you cannot practice these things and go to heaven. You who have practiced them must repent and turn from them and trust in Jesus to be saved. And then what do you find? Verse 11, that you're washed. The filth is cleaned because Jesus became unclean upon a cross to make you clean. You're sanctified. You who were far from God and in your filth, he snatched out and set apart for God, you were, he says, justified. You were pardoned because Jesus was condemned for you. You were accepted as righteous because Jesus obeyed perfectly these commands for you. And so do you see what he's saying? He's saying heaven is full of former sexual sinners like Augustine, like Luther, like John Newton, like so many of us because we get to heaven by our Savior Not by our sinlessness. But for those who persist in these sins, who are characterized by these sins, who are unrepentant about them, not trusting in Jesus, there is, he says, judgment. And so I would simply say to us, you have got to die to yourself as you follow Jesus. Your body is not your own. You were bought with a price. Honor God with your body. Die to yourself in your dating relationships. Love is patient. Wait for the right time. Wait for marriage. And die to yourself in your marital relationship with your spouse. Part of that saying yes at the wedding is saying yes in the bedroom. And may God help us to be a help to one another, 
to live righteously before Him. Let's pray. Father, forgive the filth of our sin. Thank you that Jesus covers our shame, takes it away. He bore our shame upon the cross. There's no condemnation for those who are in Him. We pray that you'd help us more and more uh, to live and love, to live in love, and uh, to love as you would have us do so. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand.